this is Souls on Mission Sunday. Uh, we're very excited about it. And uh, it's, uh, our theme is following Jesus into the mess. And we see here, of course, uh, an emblematic picture, iconic, of our work in Kenya and a uh, child. Kathy, do you know who this child is? You don't, okay. Um, standing in the mess of a garbage heap uh, in, in, in uh, Kenya. Um, we follow Jesus into the mess. And as I was thinking about this, um, this starts as soon as we are formally brought into the Christian community with baptism. We are brought into the Christian community by, by being dipped in water or having water poured over us um, or fully immersed as I was in the Indian Ocean. And I, I, I came across this wonderful book, and I'm sure some of you, some of you have, I know some of you have this book, Being Christian by Rowan Williams. He has fascinating things to say about baptism, uh, germane to what we're talking about today. Uh, of course, in the New Testament, we see this word baptism uh, featuring in the ministry and teaching of Jesus, and it's um, uh, extensively in Paul's letters. From the very beginning, baptism was a ritual for joining the Christian community, for becoming a follower of Jesus, and it was associated with the idea of going down into the darkness of Jesus' suffering and death, being swamped by the reality of what Jesus endured. Have any of you experienced uh, that feeling of being swamped by reality? Um, Jesus restores humanity by in coming into the chaos of our world. In Indonesia, they've got, a, they've got an expression called ala uh, champur tangan, which means God, God mixes his hands in our stuff. And in, in doing so, he gets his hands dirty in our stuff. And I love that image that they have. So Jesus comes into that chaos, his entire body, into our mess, where we are the most disordered, disfigured, and the most needy. And Rowan Williams has this lovely phrase. He says, well, he calls it the neighborhood of chaos. <laughs> and it's not quite like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, baptism is a ceremony whereby we follow Jesus into the neighborhood, we're pushed into the middle of a human situation that may hurt us, that will not leave us untouched or unsullied or undirtied. And the gathering of uh, the baptized people, that's us, is not a convocation of, as Andrew was preaching before, of the self-righteous, of the privileged, of the, of the elite and the separate, but of those who have accepted what it means to be in the heart of a needy, contaminated, messy world. Just yesterday, you know, in the scare of this coronavirus, I met up with our friend Chris, uh, I call him Chris Kringle, the guy who receives gas cards. And he is barely anything to live on, to live by. His family is in St. Charles, but he is reaching out to other needy people, one of whom he brought to my presence yesterday, uh, Brenda. And Brenda is a yeah, youthful face, no teeth bright blue eyes that look at you. One's looking askance that way. And she sees me. She's homeless right now. She sees me. She says, hello, Robert. And she comes at me like this. What am I to do? <laughs> Embrace. When I didn't want to, I embraced. Um, in the heart of a needy, contaminated, messy world, put another way, as Rowan Williams says, you don't go into the waters of the Jordan without stirring up a great deal of mud. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian life. The community of Jesus. What a glorious mess because God works his life in us through our messes, through our chaos, and even through our death. And this means, of course, as we are baptized in the community of Jesus, we are immersed into the mess of humanity. And our human identity is restored by Jesus in that mess. 
And in that place, we allow God to tell us who we are, a kingdom of priests to bring reconciliation and hope in that place, in that muddle, building bridges where relationships have been broken, where they've been wrecked. We're baptized to be priests, and we're drawn into the priestliness of Jesus, called to mend shattered relationships between God and the world through the power of Jesus Christ. And so baptism... Or as identity in the chaos, and I asked Matt Milliner to help me out here, and we've got this uh, in the tradition of the Christian East, the baptism mosaic of Hosios Lucas in Greece. And Jesus here is entering up to his neck in the waters of chaos, and we've got the elements of chaos down here, threatening Jesus, coming at him. And Jesus comes in down to the Jordan River and stirs up that mud, and he says, for this I came into the world. And so this morning, um, we have a few dear people, Jennifer, Angela, and Amanda, uh, to tell us a little bit about how their identity has been shaped in the mess that they have entered uh, here at home, locally, um, how they've experienced Christ shaping them and shaping others around them in Africa and in the Middle East. And we'll have Jennifer up first to talk a little bit about Shalom in Syria. Good morning. Downstairs in children's worship, um, we tell some stories about Jesus' ministry, and um, one of those stories talks about um, how Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. And then it says the people did not understand. And so he said, come, follow me, I will show you the way of the kingdom of God. And then here's what he did. He came close to the sick. I don't know if Brenda's sick, but, but it, it seems to apply with Second the corona. Yep. There, there we go, there we go, um, coronavirus as well. <laughs> um, Jesus encouraged the poor, and he enjoyed the children. So I wanna tell you a little bit about um, how that happened for me last June. Also sent me to Lebanon to, uh, with Exodus World Service. Uh, specifically to work with Syrian refugees. And um, this is a home. They call them tent homes. They don't feel much like tents to me. They do have some frame to them. You can see the wooden frame. Uh, and it's basically tarps over top. And if you look very closely, you can see a little guy uh, inside. There are three purposes to Exodus's involvement in Lebanon. Um, through the support of All Souls and other churches, um, Exodus is funding a fourth grade classroom for Syrian refugees. Uh, the Syrians are not permitted in Lebanese schools. And without church-based schools like the one that Exodus supports, the refugee children would have no schooling. Many have had no schooling um, even for a decade because even in Syria, um, their lives have been pretty 
chaotic for quite a few years. And what Exodus found, um, I guess it's almost two years ago now when they first started going to Lebanon, um, was they would have kids, you know, picture like fifth grade kids um, who did not know how to write their own names because they uh, had spent quite a few years without any schooling opportunity. Um, for those of you that know anything about Syria, it, it, it really is a world-class country historically, and um, the, the Syrian refugees that come over, most of them um, were professionals in their communities. Some are from smaller villages, but it's a, it's a unique experience, and the parents are very concerned about being able to provide schooling for their kids. Another reason why um, Exodus is involved in Lebanon working with Syrian refugees is because they're um, providing food boxes. And, and again, money that All Souls gives um, is part of Exodus providing food boxes to families. Um, most Syrian refugees have no form of income. They, they might um, kind of do something on the side, try to go clean houses. Some of them are begging in the streets. Um, but there are no formal ways for them to, um, to get jobs. Several years ago, I think it was 2015, uh, the Lebanese government asked the United Nations to leave. It was in conjunction with closing the border with Syria with an attempt to actually stop the flow of refugees um, coming over the mountains, but they still come. They're often smuggled. Um, they often need to pay smugglers. It's only a few hours away walking for, for many people. They, they just come right over the mountains and they end up in Lebanon. And um, they, they will find communities like this um, where they can uh, settle in and at least be with people that speak Arabic um, uh, who they can raise their children alongside of. But um, the, the food boxes that come from a local church um, are part of feeding um, the refugee families. Um, some of them find work in Beirut, which is not too far away, um, but most of them are not permitted to work in any way. Um, I'll show you another picture here. Um, the other reason that Exodus has been going to Lebanon to work with Syrian refugees, they're calling the Ministry of Presence. and. Um, that was the main reason for me going with the team last June, um, was to just sit and listen to people's stories. Um, it, it is pretty messy, and uh, some of the families we spoke to um, misunderstood and thought we were with the United Nations. They would, they would um, show us um, the cost of their prescriptions and they would ask for money and there were a lot of things that they they wanted to actually one very funny and very very sad moment um, as we were driving away from a community there was a father who kept on trying to hand his uh, two-year-old to us and it was this funny little laughing exchange that we had where he was smiling and laughing but we realized that he actually really meant it. And if we had taken possession of the two-year-old and just carted him away, you know, on my hip or something, he would not have stopped us because he really was saying, take him, we, we don't, we're not able to feed him, give him a better life. And it was jarring, it was messy, it was very messy and it, because it felt, why would anyone ever do that? But, that 
it's very uncomfortable. And it also felt uncomfortable for us to not be able to provide any quick fixes. We knew we were working with the school. We were, knew we were working with the food boxes. But um, in many ways, what we did was we brought shalom, or in Arabic, salam. Um, and we sat and we listened to their stories. We asked them how long they had been in Lebanon. We asked them about their lives in, in Syria. Um, so a few things that I noticed while I was there. Uh, even in the midst of poverty, Syrian families are demonstrating hospitality to guests. Um, every single home we went into, um, mothers would direct children to bring out a tray. And I'm not sure how well you can see this, but there are little glasses. There is a, um, a pot that most likely contains um, hot tea. And um, there were often um, little cookies or candies that were brought out to us. And it was quite remarkable. Uh, we would be sitting on a dirt floor while they served us. Um, a beautiful thing to see hospitality in that setting. Uh, another thing that I noticed um, was that both adults and children continue to be joyful in their circumstances. Um, these are Muslim families. They worship Allah, uh, and they are very grateful to God for protecting them and their families. This is just a fun picture. We were singing songs and uh, kids enjoying themselves. We're sitting, you, you can barely see it, we're sitting on a cushion that's on a, um, a dirt floor. Uh, they're often very hopeful about what is to come, even in the midst of very sad stories. And I also noticed that um, God is very present in the Mass. Um, this is, uh, Jesus is my shepherd in, in Arabic, and um, this was just along the side of a road um, in the midst of some um, grape, what do we call them? They're not orchards, grape vineyards. vineyards. Yeah, we call them vineyards. Yeah, uh, so near some vineyards and um, where the, um, the farmers had, had rented some land to refugees where they put tents up. But even in the midst of that mess, um, Jesus is very present and God is very present. That's this story. Amanda? Can you go back to that image of the, the art, a mosaic? The mosaic, yeah, sure. Great. Great. I don't have my own visual today, so I think this is a nice placeholder. Um, good morning. Um, so I think there's a particular kind of grace um, that God gives us when he allows us to serve um, in some of these ways, obviously with, with refugees and um, the people that are most in need in our world, there's very tangible things that can be done, right? There's physical work that can be done, and I think there's a, there's a particular kind of grace God gives us um, when we can participate in that, right? There's a sense of not only meeting the need, but being able to step back and see the immediate fruit of your work and to take delight in that as well. Um, but I think a lot of times, and, and as we see with everything that's happening in our world and all the crises that are happening, there's ample opportunity to do those types of tasks and that kind of work. Um, but often in my personal experience, it's not quite as glamorous or dramatic or 
even evident um, the type of work that I'm able to do. Um, and so I want to share with you just a little bit of how the food pantry has um, been a good example of, of a different kind of grace um, that God has, is calling us to. Um, I think Rob set up so beautifully with this image of um, Christ descending into the waters of baptism. Um, so just to give you a little context for those of you who haven't been there, um, the Emmanuel Food Pantry that we partner with, they have kind of a repurposed house on the back of their property where there's kind of two rooms that they house our um, food pantry in. There's the dry goods room and then there's kind of a, um, a garage-like room that has like the produce and the meats and that kind of thing. And so when I volunteer, I'm usually, I'm on the dry goods, dry goods station. Um, and what that looks like, um, there's really like two functions. One, you're kind of the guardian of the resources, so making sure um, families don't take too much so that there's enough to go around. The food pantry is able to serve 500 families a week, which is amazing. Um, and so being able to kind of guard those resources, but the more um, enjoyable task, I think, um, and function of that role is just to be a warm presence. Um, and so with that, it's a lot of standing around, um, which can feel uncomfortable, right? Like there's some stocking and some minor things um, and some interactions with people, but there's no dramatic conversations or very few uh, really deep, meaningful conversations that happen. I'm not physically giving them anything, right? The, the pantry is supplying them with things. Um, but on an individual level, I'm not able to see, um, see results of my, my service and my labor. Um, and that can be hard at first. And, and a lot of times, it can be frustrating, feel frustrating. I feel so useless or ineffectual or... Um, yeah, like I, I'm not making that much of a difference. Um, but I think in that opportunity, it's a perfect reminder of a, a deeper kind of grace that Jesus calls us to. Um, when we're allowed to serve in those areas where um, our contribution isn't obvious or substantial or tangible, I think it releases us from this illusion um, that God, uh, that we're the protagonist in the situation, right? That that God is calling me to this situation because I have certain prowess or a skill set here, and he's calling me to do this, which sometimes is the case. Um, but it's not because of what I'm able to do. It's because of the work that, that God is going to be doing through his spirit. Um, and so um, for me in this season of my life, the presence of Christ and the presence of Jesus has been so powerful, and I think this has been a great chance to practice that and to see um, be, be stripped of any illusion that I'm able to do something and offer something um, and be reminded that as Jesus descended into the chaos, um, the turmoil, the dirt, the grime of humanity, um, that the miracle of the incarnation and the presence of Christ is what, what allows for true transformation um, at every level. And so, um, yeah, I think he calls us into that chaos and, and we get to by being, right, as believers, we have that spirit that raised Christ from the dead living in us. And so when we're able to be present to the people around us, regardless of what we do, when we're present to them um, and are welcoming to them that presence of Christ, that transformational presence is present to them as well. Um, so that's that story. And just a quick plug for those of you um, who might not be at either service, um, there's a very, there is a practical way we can partner with the pantry at this time. Um, check your bulletins for... Um, for details for that, but a lot of times there's gaps in the different donations that they get, um, and particularly in the areas of paper goods. Um, and so we're gonna be spending the next few weeks um, collecting some of those items. So we'd love for you, um, if you feel led to partner with us in that way. Thank you. Yeah, Brad. So you have 500 Yeah, there's five, I think, maybe Sarah? Is it a month? Uh, yeah. A month, did I say a week? I'm sorry. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. See, takes a village. Yes. Yes, thank you. Five hundred people. I knew five hundred was in there. Great, and 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 they have. I think it's open three or four times a week, right? There's the Sunday, but then at least two times during the week as well. So, I would say, yeah, like thirty-ish. I'm I'm so bad at, at estimation. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, we'll get a chance to discuss. Uh, I have questions for Jennifer, but after Angela speaks, time for Q&A also for, uh, uh, yeah, you did. So I don't know. Just blurting out. No, 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 no. No, I'm glad you did. That's exactly what you yeah, No talking. Yeah. We must establish the rules at the outset. I forgot to do that. Um, so we're sending people out all the time. We sent Angela out um, to Africa, and she came back. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> and she's got some pretty interesting stuff to tell us about her time there. Good morning. I am so excited to share with you all today. It has taken me a long time to figure out what it is that I want to say to you. And is this one? Oops, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so a year and a half ago, I stood right here and I told you that I was getting ready to leave the States as a missionary. Um, I was partnering with an organization that does Bible translation work um, to go to a country in North Africa with a largely Muslim population. And I was planning to use my skills in design and marketing to assist with some scripture distribution projects. And as a part of that process, I was discerning if I might want to do long-term missions. Um, and I was making a kind of an eight-month commitment to this country right here. These pictures are just a couple of blocks from the apartment that I lived in. It is quite a magical city. Um, so in October of 2018, I boarded a plane and landed in this country um, off the coast of the Mediterranean. You can see the Mediterranean Sea right up there in the corner. Um, and I met up with some missionaries or workers, as we called ourselves on the field, because it was illegal to be a missionary in this country. Um, and because of that, I immediately had to start thinking, what am I going to tell people when I meet them? Like, what do I say that I am? Um, and a week after I arrived, I suddenly was presented with a solution to that, because I was unexpectedly thrown into a teaching role at a local school four mornings a week. And whoops, this is my classroom here. <laughs> they are quite a group of kids with a lot of energy. Um, and the not so great part about my taking on this role as a teacher is that I'm not trained as a teacher. I actually never experienced an elementary school classroom as a student because during that time in my life, I was homeschooled. Um, <laughs> so like, I really didn't have a sense of what this was supposed to look like. And I had been in the country for only a week at this point. So I had like no sense of cultural expectations around what this would look like. Um, so from all of those perspectives, this was like a total disaster. Um, but on the flip side, it gave me a way to talk about myself, right? So 
when I met someone at the market, I could say, Aslama, hello, any Angela, any Mualma, I'm Angela and I'm a teacher. Um, and I thought this worked pretty well, like people accepted it, they didn't really question it verbally, but I could tell that still in the back of their minds they were like kind of saying to themselves like, what is this young, white, single American woman doing here as a teacher in a very poor country where most people would really like to get out if they could. Um, it just didn't quite make sense to people. Um, and it was even a little bit harder when I was with my closer friends because um, they knew that this teaching thing had not been my first plan for what I was going to do. Um, they knew that it felt very overwhelming to me. Um, and they were very confused about what I was doing there because I would say to them, I'm a teacher, and they were like, but you don't even like teaching. Like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Um, so I just was really struggling with, like, how do I talk about myself? Um, and the longer that I was there, the more I became uncomfortable in my own head with thinking about myself as a missionary um, because to be a missionary kind of meant to live a double life, um, telling people in your home country an embellished kind of spiritualized version of what my life looked like on a day-to-day -day level, um, and then telling people who were in the country that I was working in something that was like totally sanitized and different, and that felt really dissonant to me. It didn't feel honest in either direction. Um, and beyond this personal dissonance that I felt, um, I became more and more aware of the ways that missions in this very particular context um, was perceived to be very deeply connected to colonial cultural and political agendas, and I felt very uncomfortable with that and did not want to associate myself with those agendas. Um, so about halfway through my time in this country, I stopped thinking about myself as a missionary and I also stopped calling myself a teacher um, when I was with my good friends. Um, you can see some of my dear friends here. Um, and through a training that I took in the country, I worked out another way to talk about myself, one that felt quite a bit more honest. And the first time I tried it, I was with um, one of my language tutors, the one on the far side over here. We're on a hike in that picture. Um, but when we had this conversation, we were actually at her house, and it was during Ramadan, and we had celebrated the iftar meal, the breaking of the fast, together with her family. And then we were waiting up late at night till around 2 or 3 a.m. when we would come back downstairs to the kitchen and eat one more meal um, before fasting started again. So we were just kind of hanging out in her room and watching movies um, until we would have this late night meal. And I said to her, you know, I really did not come here to be a teacher, which at this point she was well aware of. Um, and I said to her, I also didn't come for all these other projects that I work on. She kind of knew that I was working on a bunch of other um, projects with the worker family that I partnered with because she tutored um, me and their kids together. Um, so I said, I, I didn't really come for those projects either. I told her I was raised a Christian, 
which in her context is almost synonymous with saying I was raised American, kind of a very cultural statement. Um, so I said I was raised a Christian, but um, I am a follower of Aisa, Salamu Alina. I'm a follower of Jesus, his peace be upon us. And I came here because of something that he said that changed my life. Um, something he said in one of his most famous teachings that you all would know as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I described to her how Aisa said that everyone loves their friends. Even wicked people love their friends. But Aisa said, I tell you, love your enemies. God makes the sun rise on everyone. He does not differentiate. Um, so be like God and love everyone, not just your friends. And I told her that's not just what Aisa taught. It is how he lived. He spent a lot of time hanging out with the wrong people. He welcomed a tax collector and a zealot into his inner circle. And I realized that if I am following him, I had better be sure that I am loving the people who my culture and even my religion tells me are the wrong people also. Um, and I told her that I had a lot of friends who are Syrian Muslim refugees in the States. And that um, through my relationships with them, I realized that Muslims are often labeled as that enemy here. Um, a lot of people feel like they're, they're dangerous, and, um, and I just had begin to feel, began to feel Aisa telling me I need to figure out what it means to love them well. And so I came to her country to learn the Arabic language, to learn about Muslim culture, and to learn what does it mean for Christians to love Muslims better. Um, and we had a great conversation on her bed at like midnight about this. And I got to have this conversation with each of these um, dear ladies who were my friends and language helpers and people who I leaned on for everything that I needed. <laughs> um, and the thing that I love about having this conversation um, to talk about what I was doing in North Africa was that it resolved that dissonance of telling two different stories. I'm a missionary, I'm a teacher, um, was something that felt more true than either of those. Um, and I kind of felt also that as a missionary, I had had this kind of professional responsibility almost um, to love others well in this context. Um, but as a follower of Jesus, love is just a way of existing. Um, it doesn't need a label. You don't, it's not a profession. It just is something that we are all called to. Um, so I did, in fact, wholly kind of leave that label behind. I realized through um, these eight months overseas that I am not interested in pursuing long-term missions, at least at this time in my life. Um, uh, but I came home with a renewed sense of what it means to intentionally see and love the people around me, especially when they're foreigners. Um, because let me tell you, moving um, between sort of an individualistic um, mentality culture to an honor-shame-based culture, that is a really, really difficult transition um, to make, set aside like the whole language barrier and everything else. That cultural transition is not easy. Um, and as I have reintegrated into my home culture, I've um, been on the lookout for ways to love those who are experiencing the vulnerability of that transition. And for me, recently, that has 
looked like I've gotten to be kind of involved with the international student program at the school where I work, which has been really fun. Um, and to close, I would like to read an excerpt from Thomas Merton that I came across recently um, in New Seeds of Contemplation because I feel like this kind of sums up so much of what I learned and experienced while I was in Africa. So Merton writes, God's will is certainly found in anything that is required of us in order that we may be united with one another in love. The plainest summary of all the natural law is to treat other humans as if they were human. But I cannot treat other people as humans unless I have compassion for them. I must have at least enough compassion to realize that when they suffer, they feel somewhat as I do when I suffer. And if for some reason I do not spontaneously feel this kind of sympathy for others, then it is God's will that I do what I can to learn how. I must learn to share with others their joys, their sufferings, their ideas, their needs, their desires. I must learn to do this not only in the cases of those who are of the same class, the same profession, the same race, the same nation as myself, but when men who suffer belong to other groups, even to groups that are regarded as hostile. If I do this, I obey God. If I refuse to do it, I disobey him. It is not, therefore, a matter left open to subjective caprice. Um, so I submit to you this word from Merton, and I thank you so much for your prayers and support for me while I was abroad. I um, was so blessed by those of you who reached out to me and read my newsletters and prayed for me because I really, really needed it. And I'm so, so grateful to be back in this community again. You guys really are my family, and I'm so glad to be home with you. I hardly know what to say. Well, maybe that means I should say nothing. Um, I'd love to have you ask some questions of any of us. After talking with Angela, we talked for a while about how she would share her experience. And when she came upon this idea of exploring how her identity, her core identity, who she was in Christ, how she would communicate that to Muslims. That came to the forefront. And I think that's so much at the heart of how we communicate Jesus. Who am I? Who am I in Christ? And that's what they need to hear. And can I be a friend in Jesus? Not to convert, but to come alongside a Muslim friend. Can we work and live in the ways of Jesus together before I see him as a target or her as a target? And so I think what Angela experienced here is this, this continuum, this growth in her identity, and it, it spoke so powerfully to me. Um, and so I, that's where it starts. I, I've, I, just real quick before we have questions here. Um, my my brother-in-law, he passed away recently. We're going to his funeral in, uh, in San Diego. He started as a, as a missionary to Frontiers. They were out there to convert Muslims. He changed his whole thinking. He left Frontiers. He said, I've got to come alongside Muslims and work to bring shalom to the world with Muslims. And he said, for that, I need to know what my core identity is in Jesus. And from that place, the core identity, is, as Angela just spoke to so beautifully, then I can 
reach out. And, and it doesn't matter who these are, Christian, secular, Muslim, it doesn't matter. We are all uh, aspiring to live in the ways of Christ together. And so this understanding of who I am in Christ, and Angela, how you discovered that, I think, you know, uh, it, it was a wonderful thing. So um, thoughts, questions um, to, for a, any of us, Angela, Jennifer, yeah, mm -hmm. yep. So um, Rob and I, um, Rob leads Souls on Mission, and I help him a little bit. And one thing that we talk about, um, honestly, in regard to every one of the organizations that we support is the concept of spiritual imagination. And, and I want to share something in that vein that relates to this, and, and there's threads with each one of these um, stories. So I don't completely know how to reconcile the dilemma of you know, whether it's Frontier or, or, or any mission organization that is out there trying to convert people, because I, I do believe in the Great Commission. And, and so how do I reconcile that with, um, with Angela in North Africa not converting people? How do I reconcile that with, with uh, going to Lebanon and I can't report back to you that you know we had 50 people become Christians. I can't do that, and and the same thing with with Amanda at the food pantry. We can't say, oh well, you know, here's our here's our here are our stats of of uh, how many people we've converted. But but so here's my thread of spiritual imagination with with this all of this, which honestly is about holding my hands open and saying this is not my plan. This is God's plan. But here's a possibility. What if the Great Commission is actually not just about my lifetime or your lifetime? What if the Great Commission is so much bigger than that? So what if, what if my part in this, maybe, is simply to come alongside someone in a tent community in Lebanon or or what if the three lovely pictures of Angela and her friends maybe the, the piece of the Great Commission lived out. What if, what if it is the befriending, what if it is the shalom, the salam, um, that we can bring to people? And what if God's plan is that maybe another generation removed Muslims and Christians can be in conversation with one another? What if, what if the Great Commission is lived out, um, but we don't, get to, we don't have the stats to say, oh, well, we converted these people. What if the Great Commission is so much bigger than that? And, and what if it's several generations removed that, that there are um, sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the people that we can befriend who maybe come to worship Jesus because we were a tiny, seemingly insignificant piece of the Great Commission. What if? I don't know. I'm sure you have a lot of comments or questions at this point. Um, yes, Kathy.
Yeah, thanks. I think, uh, I think that we easily establish this dualism between spiritual and secular. You know, that's not in scripture. And when we go into the workplace, when we go out in the world and do whatever, you know, that brings the two together in, in the love of Christ. So uh, there's no dualism in that sense, yeah. Um, Angela, would you agree to that? I mean, in your experience? <laughs> yeah, that's a, sorry, it should be an open-ended question. Yeah, she says yes. All right, very good. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah, and, and Brad has a question for Angela. Angela, get behind this mic. Get me, get me away from you. Okay. Can I ask questions here? Yeah, <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah. All right. So when you have this talk with mm -hmm. women, yeah. especially that first one, yeah. what was their reaction like? Oh, my gosh, what are you doing? No, it was totally accepting. It was like, it totally made sense because all of my friends, like, know who Aisa is. They respect him. They respect his teaching. They know that because I'm a Christian, I follow his teaching. Like, it was not a, like, confrontational conversation at all. It was, it was like, oh, that totally, that makes way more sense to me than you saying you're here to be a teacher. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Monica? Probably my journey was very much triggered by, um, well, it's been a long journey because I always wanted to be a missionary as a kid. I read a bunch of missionary biographies. It was like my dream, and I had sort of a very romantic idea about what it meant to be a missionary. And then um, I hit the ground in North Africa and had not been... Um, very exposed to the different methodologies around connecting to Muslims and loving them well and um, talking to them about Jesus. And um, there are some very defined sort of camps in the missionary world in terms of methodology about that. And so I think a lot of my journey of figuring out how do I talk about myself and like how do I think about myself and what does this look like for me and my friendships was triggered by kind of very suddenly encountering some methodologies that felt like, I don't know what to do with this, um, but here I am in the middle of it, I had to figure it out. Um, and so then it probably took me the first, I, I think I was six months in maybe when I got to the point where I could have that conversation with my friend. Um, and then that very much kind of carried me through the end of my time there um, in a really positive way. So that was kind of how my journey was shaped. Yeah, Jim. It's interesting to me that you chose the little piece of scripture, just the little tiny 
different ways, you knew more about yourself and that other person knew more about yourself afterwards. I wonder, did you on other days use other little pieces of scripture in kind of a similar way to communicate that or did you kind of stick with that one? That was the one that I held on to most. Um, but it was, one of the things I really loved about being in this culture is that because it's such a religiously saturated culture, um, it's not weird the way it is here, <laughs> maybe, to like integrate, especially biblical stories into conversation really regularly. So like we could be sitting in the middle of a language lesson and talking about something that happened and be like, oh, this reminds me of the story that Aisa told and like have a conversation about a parable or something and it felt very normal um whereas in our secular context here that would just feel a little strange um so i don't know i really enjoyed that sort of freedom to integrate jesus's teaching into conversation yeah and jennifer concept that you're talking about, but this is a culture where the idea of following a prophet oh, is yeah. totally normal. Yes. And, and, and the idea, I love, I love your wording, you know, his famous teaching. I mean, as Christians who sit here on a Sunday morning, we don't think of these as famous teaching. That's a funny way to talk about it, but, but that's perfect. I mean, you know, there might be, I mean, we might think about, um, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr., famous teaching, or, but we don't really think of Jesus having famous teachings, but I think, and maybe we should think of it more as his famous teaching. <laughs> I think there's value there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Jason? Yeah, so uh, I just want to make a plug for the, for the totally uh, small, like, food pantry options. Yes. What I love about the food pantry, like, I, was, I grew up Christian missionary in Lyme yeah. I'm just preaching my language right now. Like, yeah. we, we just always have like, missionaries coming back from the mission field. They didn't do as good a job of <laughs> telling us like true from their heart. I think. Like, it was definitely not like super spiritual. Like, <laughs> it was sort of amazing. And those are always inspiring. It's inspiring to hear about Jennifer, you know, going to the Syrian refugees or, or going to Kenya. And that's always inspiring. But what what what's amazing to me about the food pantry is like it's right there. Yes. You know, and, and it's so easy for me to be like, I know I should serve. Yes. I'm not going to Kenya. I'm not going to, to Lebanon. Yes. I'm not going to North Africa. Like, there's so many reasons why that's not happening. Maybe sometime. Maybe sometime. I'm just yeah. Saying, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying I shouldn't. I'm just saying it's so easy to be like, oh, how, you know. But like, the food pantry's right there. It's, it's, yes. you know, it's 15 minutes away. It's been such a blessing for our family to serve together there. There's no excuse not, for, for us, it's like, yeah. there's no excuse not to. Like, we want to serve, and here it is. Yeah. I'm so grateful for our church's partnership with that because it makes it so easy. Yes. Um, I'm grateful for Rob and for the concept of Souls on Mission because I feel like if, like me, you have a sense that you should serve, but it's, like, very easy to uh, think, well, that's a little hard, or I couldn't probably swing that. I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, I bet you could go to Rob anytime and be like, I have a hard to serve, but I'm not sure what to do. Like, I bet he could give you options. You know? Yes. It doesn't have to be Yes. You know, 
Yeah. It's, it's awesome. If not, I feel blessed that it was made that easy for us to serve. Yes. When you might think, I want to serve, but I don't know how. Yeah. And it's right there. Yes. So, and I fully affirm, I we are all so culturally equip, equipped to serve here in America. Like we understand the assumptions that we all share. Um, there are so many reasons why like, I, I feel so grateful to be serving in a culture that I understand now and grateful for those things that are like right in front of us that we all should be stepping into and I so admire this community for doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think there's like two pieces of that. One is that like it has built this deep sense of empathy for the foreigners who I know and like what that experience feels like um, and ha has just created in me this heart of like, I really want to come alongside you and help you to not be alone in this because it is really hard when day after day you're alone. Um, <laughs> and Brad is telling me that's the end. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah, 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 hi. Thinking about your question and also yeah. just thinking about all of us, like we are not in Kenya or Abitibi Pantry right now, but one thing that really struck me many years ago when I was preparing a sermon on vocation is that all of us, when we have Christ living in us, mm -hmm. we go out and minister whatever job you do. So like I try to think about like when I was a sub, I needed to be the best sub for these children in this room their job. My job is to give them grace. Their job is to work hard. We all, I think, as believers, have a vocation and a, and a need and like a purpose to serve the Lord in the place that we are. And so like, even if we're not sure where we're going to serve, if it's Kenya or the food pantry, like we can serve today when we go out into our world and our vocation and the place that we're working. And I, I really take a lot of peace in that sometimes when I'm like, what am I doing? Well, I'm going to try to give, you know, do what I can for the yeah. Amen. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks, all. It's a blessing to be with you, to serve with you. And thank you, Angela, Jennifer, and Amanda.